Speaking of movies, if you were at church with us here at Highland yesterday and you heard uh, our sermon, you heard me hand over my man card and share that one of my top five favorite movies of all time is The Parent Trap. And I got a lot of hate from some of our Mexico team, a lot of judgment from Zach Wikes, but that's fine. <laughs> but I want you to think for a moment about the, one of the stars in the movie, Lindsay Lohan. At the age of three, uh, Lohan began modeling. She started modeling with the Ford Company, but it wasn't until the parent trap that her career took off like a rocket, and she ascended to quick stardom in the United States, singing and acting, and she appeared in many other Disney films at a young age, uh, including Freaky Friday, Herbie Fully Loaded, Mean Girls. She was a star. But Lohan succumbed to the same fate that many childhood stars in our country have succumbed to. The money, the fame, the popularity got to her head and it led to what? Drugs, alcohol, partying. And from the cover of Parent Trap, then her life began to look a little more like this. Not what we call a flattering picture, one of her many mug shots. She was arrested many times between 2007 and 2012, her life went from on the screen to off the screen, on the screen to prison and rehab. She spent 250 days in various rehab facilities between 07 and 2012. She was arrested a number of times. She was sentenced to jail six times. She had to perform community service. She was using alcohol and cocaine. And in one of the DUI accounts, even, it, she was accused of attempting to run over another woman with her car. She walked out of a store with a two, uh, $2,500 necklace around her neck. She appeared in court nine times in 10 months span at the end of 2010 into 2011. Her life was a mess. Lindsay Lohan is a great example of someone who started out great, but a good start doesn't mean a good finish. And unfortunately, that's the man in our account tonight. That's King Hezekiah. A great start, actually an incredible start. We talked about him last week, Isaiah 36 and 37, it was an incredible count of God's sovereignty. But even before that, Hezekiah had been king for 15 years. And he was one of the six good kings in the nation of Judah. He's a great guy. He was a reformer and a revivalist in the best way. He brought reform to God's people. He brought worship of God back. He, he tore down the idols. He got rid of the high places. He reinstituted God's law. He stopped paying tribute to the Assyrians. He started trusting in the Lord. He did everything right. He wasn't a perfect king, but he was a great king. And then he finds his back against the wall in Isaiah 36 and 37. He finds Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and 185,000 soldiers virtually surrounding the city of Jerusalem, knocking on his door saying, surrender or else. And Hezekiah is presented with two choices. One, <clears throat> he can surrender and face sure and certain deportation, which doesn't usually work well for the king. Or he could say, yeah, I'm going to fight back. But that wasn't going to work very well because he had less than 2,000 men that he could put on a horse and fight. There was no way he was going to beat Sennacherib. So what does Hezekiah do? He prays. He instantly walks up the stairs to the temple. He talks to the Lord. He begs for his help. And God sends a message, a prophecy through the prophet Isaiah. says, Hezekiah, we're going to deliver you. And God's deliverance, it doesn't happen right away. Hezekiah prays again. He asks for God's deliverance. God again promises deliverance. And and God does something miraculous. He destroys 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. 
send Sennacherib wandering back to Nineveh all by himself. It's an incredible account of God's sovereignty. And Hezekiah, as a man of God, as a picture of what it means to pray, he goes to God first, he trusts in him, and he prays. But that's not the only example of Hezekiah doing things the right way. Uh, If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Isaiah mostly 39 tonight, but I want to start in 38, another account of Hezekiah trusting the Lord. Must have happened pretty close after Isaiah 36 and 37. It says, in those days, Isaiah 38 verse 1, Hezekiah became sick and was to the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not recover. Pause. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Isaiah, your accountability partner, your spiritual advisor, your prayer warrior, he comes knocking on your door while you're sick. I mean, you're probably expecting the pastor of the country to come in and pray for you, lay hands on you, and ask for God to heal you. But he says, thus says the Lord, you're about to die. What? And and you know what's Isaiah? You know he's not going to lie. I mean, you know he's telling the truth. So Isaiah says, yeah, yeah, get your will in order. Make sure you know who's going to get what. Make sure that you know, everything's figured out with your family because you're not going to survive this one. Would you even want that? Would you want a warning that you're about to die? I don't think I would. But what does Hezekiah do? Verse 2. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what's good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. What? What did Hezekiah do? The same thing. In the face of adversity, when his back's against the wall, he goes to the Lord and he prays. And did you see what he said? He didn't require, he didn't demand. He didn't say, God, you have to heal me. God, look at what I've done for you. You better heal me. He says, Please, God, remember. Remember your faithfulness. Remember your servant. He prays and asks that God might bring healing to his life. And imagine the celebration, the sorrow of a death sentence followed by a celebration for 15 years added to his life. Be incredible for him and for his family. And God answers this prayer. Hezekiah is a reminder that we can pray for big things, that we can pray for bold things. Then in the face of even a challenging diagnosis, when it seems like there's no hope, we can ask that God does the miraculous, not demanding, not expecting, not requiring, but believing that God has the power and the ability to heal. And we get to ask. We get to ask. We can pray for big things. So we see three times, once in each chapter, 36, 37, 38, that Hezekiah goes to the Lord and he prays. But a good start doesn't necessitate a great finish. We see that in Verse or chapter 39. I just want to read the whole chapter. Don't worry, there's only eight verses. <laughs> At that time, Merodic Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters to present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he'd been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in the storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and and said, what did these men say? 
Where did they come from? And Hezekiah said, they've come from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom the father shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord you've spoken is good. What? Okay, we'll come back to that. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. What a wild text. Let's go back to verse 1. We're introduced to a new character, aren't we? Merodic Baladan. He's the king of Babylon. We've been dealing a lot with the Assyrians and Sennacherib. The Assyrians, that was the most powerful nation in the world at the time. They were the superpower. But then there's Babylon. We've heard of Babylon before. They're a powerful nation within the Bible, more powerful before, more powerful after this account. But when we find ourselves in the realm of the scope of history in this account, Babylon really wasn't that powerful. They were powerful. They weren't anywhere close to Assyria. When we see a Babylon in, in Scripture, there's also a, a metaphorical meaning, a symbolic meaning, that Babylon stands for everything that's against God, everything that's against God's kingdom, everything that's against God's work. It's the antithesis of Israel, of God's people. But did you see what the king of Babylon did? He takes a unique approach, doesn't he? Think of Sennacherib and the Assyrians. Sennacherib had this dictator, military, do as I say, surrender or else sort of approach, but, but not the Babylonians. They came in using a classic military technique, flattery and manipulation. He comes in and he butters up Hezekiah. You know what he wants? He wants to learn all the secrets. He wants to learn everything about him. And he sends this envoy right after Hezekiah had been healed and said, praise your God. You must be loved. You must be blessed. You must be a great man. Your God really loves you. He healed you. And let me see all of the things that you own. Let me see all the things that you have. And Hezekiah falls for the trick, hook, line, and sinker. Flattery is powerful, isn't it? Because flattery blinds us. And the Babylonians knew that. They buttered up Hezekiah and they got exactly what they wanted out of him. It's a wise reminder for us that when someone's offering us compliments that seem out of left field or they seem excessive, they don't fit the occasion, we should probably be careful about what might happen next or what might come down the road. But the envoy, they're wandering through Solomon's palace. They're wandering through Solomon's temple, the storehouses, everything. On the outside, they're complimenting Hezekiah. Wow, you're loved, you're blessed, you're taken care of. What, an, what a great guy. Yeah, we want to partner with you. We want an alliance with you. Let, let's make our two nations collaborate. We want you to be partners with us. That's what they're saying. And they're playing into Hezekiah's dream. Hezekiah wants power. He wants influence. He wants to be a player on the global scale. He, he wants to be recognized. But on the inside, what are the envoys thinking? I can't get wait. I can't wait to get back to our king. Tell him everything that we saw. Oh, this king, he fell for our trick, hook, line, and sinker. He's going to be easy to push over. They don't have any army around here. We'll come back. Look at all this gold we can take back. Look at all the little plunder that we can take back to our families and our people. This will be incredible. That's what they're thinking. But Hezekiah doesn't see that. And after the envoys leave, I can only imagine that Hezekiah's 
on cloud nine. He's thinking, man, I just signed the world's greatest treaty with the Babylonians. We're going to collaborate. This is going to be incredible. And I'm going to become more and more powerful. I'm going to be remembered as one of the greatest kings of Judah. And just as he's re-envisioning and imagining the entire visit, there's a knock on his door. And it's his buddy, Isaiah. And you know what Isaiah wants to ask, right? What does he want to ask? Dude, you stupid? What was that about? But Isaiah's a little more diplomatic than I might be. And you see what he says. He asks some good questions. And like, who was here? Who was in your house? Did you really show them everything? Did you show them all the state secrets? Did you, did you show them all the places to find your wealth to a nation you didn't know? Did you just disclose everything to the Babylonians? Even the folders marked top secret, even the nuclear football, even the location of the president's secret nuclear bunker, even the file folder that discloses what actually happened to the Kennedys and if we actually landed on the moon, not to mention all of the gold in the treasury. Isaiah's thinking, dude, what in the world were you thinking? That was not a wise decision. And then Isaiah offers a prophecy, but this time it's not an encouraging one. It's a promise of exile by the hand of the Babylonians who would come and conquer Jerusalem would take away the Jews, even Hezekiah's own sons, and bring them to exile in a foreign land, away from their beautiful city. (laughs) But it's what happened next that completely baffles me. Isaiah, who is about 100% prediction rate in his prophecies, says, yeah, your world's going to be destroyed and your kids are going to be taken away out of your, your land. What would you expect Hezekiah to do? Well, do what he did before. Pray. Ask that God might relent. Repent immediately and ask for God's grace. And if he doesn't do that, well, then maybe do what he did in 36 and 37. Put on sackcloth and ashes and mourn and weep and ask for God's grace and mercy. That's what I expect. (laughs) But what does he do? Yeah, what you said was good. Why? Because it wasn't his problem. It was his kid's problem. He knew he was going to die in peace. He knew that he was going to have a great life. He had another 15 years to be king in peace. And then when he died, they can deal with the Babylonians. That's not my problem. Talk about starting well and finishing poorly. That's our big idea tonight. A solid start doesn't guarantee a fantastic finish. A solid start doesn't guarantee a fantastic finish. Now, if we're honest... There's a lot that we can learn from this account. But I've identified four things that you and I can do to guarantee that we crash and burn at the end. Four things that we can do to fail at the finish line. Here's the first. Pack up your prayer life. Pack up your prayer life. It's so ironic. Hezekiah serves as the example of a man of prayer in chapters 36 through 38. He's a model of consistent and faithful prayer. He goes to God first when his back is against the wall. He humbly pours out his heart to God. I love his prayer because he's raw and real. He doesn't have his life put together. It's not a perfect prayer. He just offers to God what he's feeling, what he's going through, what he's experiencing. And God answers his prayer through Isaiah. But there's a difference in our text tonight, isn't there? In Isaiah 39. Hezekiah doesn't feel like his back is against the wall. He hasn't received a death sentence. He hasn't received bad news. There's not this evil army breathing down his neck. There's peace and prosperity. 
do you think it's possible that Hezekiah's prayer life radically diminished in a season of peace? I think so, certainly. Why? Well, I think that we do the same thing, don't we? It's a lot easier, at least for me, to pray in the valley, to pray when things are going poorly, when life is terrible. But when we're on the mountaintop and everything's going great and all our needs are provided for and life couldn't be better, how easy is is it for us just to forget about God, to forget to pray? When life is on cruise control, it's easy to pack up our prayer life. We've got to keep praying, not just in the valley, but on the mountaintop, not just when things are going poorly, but when things are going well, because we are never exempt from an attack from the enemy. If God's delivered you in the past, don't, don't take for granted his deliverance in the future. If you've gone to God first in the past, then resist the temptation to think that you don't need him today or you don't need him tomorrow. Hezekiah didn't pray because he didn't think that he needed God. One of the greatest battle tactics of the enemy is to lull us to sleep with success, attacking us at the moment that we least expect It's a classic military strategy, and it's a classic strategy of Satan. My guess is we've been there. Maybe it sounds like this. My new boyfriend or girlfriend? Oh, it's okay. I just think of them as my my sibling. We would never cross any boundaries. Yeah, when I hear that, I'm instantly horrified (laughs) because it doesn't last forever. Or when someone says, I've been doing really well in my struggle with sexual sin for the last couple of months. I don't need those blockers on my phone anymore. I can take them off. I'm in the clear. Yeah, for the next couple months while I'm away at college, I don't really need church. I don't need Christian community. I'm not going to plug into crew and I'm not going to find a local church. It's, it's just not that big of a deal. Or... I don't feel like I don't feel like I've been getting attacked much lately. I don't think I need to pray through the armor of God today. I'm going to be okay. Or it's been a while since I've given in alcohol. So that party this weekend, I'll be fine. Not a big deal. The enemy will lull us to sleep with success. Make us think that we're doing great and then will hit us where it hurts at the moment that we least expect. Don't be lulled to sleep by success. Continually live in a state of dependence on the Lord. You realize this applies to our areas of ministry, doesn't it? I look out at young adults on a Monday night. I am so encouraged by how many of you are serving Highland through Wednesday night ministry, G180, One Way Club. I like to call Wednesday nights young adults 2.0. They call it G180, but I just call it young adults because so many of you are here. It's incredible. But remember, if you serve in G180 or One Way Club, remember what it felt like the first time you showed up on a Wednesday night? You remember that feeling? My guess is you were like walking in the building shaking, asking questions like, how am I going to be relevant with these kids? Are they going to listen to me? Are they going to like me? Is the small group going to be silent for 35 minutes? How am I going to connect? Am I ever going to make an impact? What in the world is the Lord going to do through me? My guess is that first night, you showed up incredibly prayed up. You were ready to go. You know that if God didn't show up, then you, you shouldn't walk through the door. But Now you're, you know, six, seven, eight months in. Now you think, I've got this. I don't need to pray before I come anymore. It's probably not intentional. You probably don't show up on a Wednesday night thinking, yeah, I don't need God, I don't need to pray. 
but maybe it's a little more subconscious. You think, yeah, I can do this on my own. We need to show up to every ministry with a state of dependence, saying, God, if you're not going to show up tonight, I shouldn't show up. God, use me for your glory. I need you. Fritz just had our Mexico team stand up. I love that he gave us a visual of who in our young adult family is leaving for Mexico on Wednesday. And I wish all of you could come with us because it is one of the most life-changing trips you could ever do. It's incredible. But if you're going to Mexico and you've gone before, you're a returner, I want to talk to you for just a second. It's really easy in year two or year three or some of you year four to feel like I've done this before, so I don't really need God's help this time. Resist the temptation to do this trip on your own. Walk in a constant state of dependence on the Lord. And if you're a newbie going to Mexico with us, I want to talk to you for a second. You're probably just a little anxious. And as Wednesday comes, you're going to get even more anxious. I'll be honest, that's okay. Because that's going to force you on your knees and force you to depend on the Lord. Don't lose that state of dependence. And whatever area of ministry you might find yourself in, we need the Lord. We need his spirit working through us. If he doesn't show up, we shouldn't show up. Hezekiah didn't depend on the Lord. He did not pray up his visit with the Babylonian envoy. Don't make the same mistake. That's our first fail. Here's our second. Practice pride. You realize Hezekiah, all he wanted was to matter. He wanted significance. He wanted influence. He wanted to be a player on the global stage. He wanted to be a king to be remembered. He wanted the annals of history to record that Hezekiah was just as great as King Solomon. And his entire life pursuit was becoming great. And he lost his purpose. He was stealing glory from the Lord. It's a big mistake. Let me find out where my notes went. <laughs> he wanted greatness. I wonder, there we are. I wonder how often you and I do the same thing. We long for greatness. We long for significance. We long for power and for influence. And that desire, actually that temptation, it, it might be just a little more <laughs> relevant than you might realize. Because many of you have built these kingdoms where you sit on the throne as king or queen. You have these fans, maybe you call them followers, that get to praise you when they like your work, they like what you do, they like how you look. It's called social media, isn't it? It's Instagram. Let me tell you, social media was not created to build your humility it's actually created to develop pride within our hearts. And here's what happens. You're scrolling through social media and you see that account that has three times the likes, follows that your account has. And you think, man, that's what I want. Why aren't I that popular? Or you see a picture of that model who has the looks that you want but don't have and you feel down about yourself. You see that guy who is probably juicing, spends three hours a day in the gym not how you look, and you feel down about yourself. Some of you are wondering why you're anxious, wondering why you're depressed. There's 
One very possible reason, because you spend two or three hours or more a day scrolling through social media, looking at the life that you wish you had but don't. Social media is designed to build our pride, not our humility. A way to fast-track failure at the end, have unbridled, uncontrolled access to social media. Spend hours a day scrolling through Instagram, TikTok, and Snapchat. It's not created for your sanctification. It's created to build your pride. But this pride can be more nuanced. This pride can happen spiritually, can it? It's what we would call spiritual pride. Again, it's feeling like we don't need the Lord, feeling like we're good enough on our own. You realize that each of us are only one step away from committing the sin that we never thought we'd commit. One step. It's kind of horrifying, isn't it? When we think about our sanctification, when we think about our growth, when we think about temptation, there's two parallel truths that we have to cling to. One, we have the power to say no to every temptation. But on the other hand, we are never beyond giving in to any temptation. When we fight against the enemy, we need to have this confident humility, confidence, knowing that we have everything that we need to resist temptation through the power of the Holy Spirit. Confidence knowing that God fills us and empowers us to fight against the enemy. He's never going to let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But at the same time, we can't become so confident that we forget we can still fall. None of us are beyond giving in to any temptation. We've got to walk with a confident humility. We have to walk with the daily dependence on God. Here's the third. Get rich quick. Hezekiah was loaded. We don't see that as much in Isaiah, but parallel account in Chronicles. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to how it describes Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 32, 27. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for, excuse me, for spices, for shields, for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses also for the yield of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and for sheepholds. He likewise provided cities for himself and flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. He was rich. He was more than rich. He was loaded. He was trying to parallel King Solomon. He had a lot of money. The words of my grandpa, money is the root of all evil. True or false? False. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is neutral, isn't it? It's neither good nor bad. But what we do with money matters. But what we see in Scripture, what we see in life is that the more money someone has, the more tempting it is to make money an idol. The more money someone has, the more tempting it is to depend on the money instead of depending on God. That was Hezekiah. He looked at his treasury, he looked at his storehouses, and he thought, I'm good. He was tempted not to depend on the Lord. Some of you are just beginning your career. Others of you are still in college and you're looking ahead to your career. And there's a temptation to make making money one of the highest goals in your vocation. It's culturally acceptable, isn't it? People with the most money in our world are the most, most respected. Everyone wants to be Jeff Bezos or 
Elon Musk or Bill Gates. And we're tempted to think, if I just had 1% of the wealth that those guys had, I'd be happy. My life would be set. No, it's a lie. We know that money can't buy our happiness, but sometimes we're tempted to believe it. Anyways, money won't make us happy. It can't, and it never will. And if Hezekiah was here, you know what he'd say? Be careful. Be careful. Money makes a lousy God. Money is the source of great temptation and pride and self-dependence. Don't pursue wealth above all else. If money becomes your God, you'll never have enough, and it'll eat you alive. So I'm imploring you, as you look ahead at your career, as you look ahead at life, don't make making money your top goal. Don't make the pursuit of wealth the highest good in your vocation because it will have detrimental effects in your relationship with God, just as it did for Hezekiah. Number four, carry carelessness. Carry carelessness. This is still the most unnerving thing in this account for me. I can't believe Hezekiah's lack of care for his sons, for his city, for his home, for his people. He's just happy that he doesn't have to endure the pain. It's careless. It's apathetic. It's indifferent. It's selfish. This is where we see his true colors coming through this account. There's not a change of heart after Isaiah's confrontation. He's still seeking after his own glory. He's still seeking after his own comfort and his own fame. What he cared about most was his own glory. Wasn't concerned about anybody else. He wasn't concerned about his legacy. Now, if I had to guess, most of us, at least who are young adults in the room tonight, haven't thought much about our legacy, about what you're going to leave for your descendants. And that's okay. That probably will change at some point down the road. But I do know that each one of us are tempted to consider ourselves first, to place ourselves in the seat of priority, to take care of our needs first and then take care of those around us. I'm afraid that if the root of selfishness in each of our hearts was completely exposed, we might be mortified at the extent of its reach. A strong start doesn't guarantee a fantastic finish. A great way to fade at the end is selfishness. To stop caring about others, to stop investing in others, to live on our own little thrones, building our own little kingdoms. Instead, humility for a Christ follower must grow over time. It's one of my favorite texts in the New Testament, Philippians 2, where Paul writes this, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love this text. You realize what Paul is saying. Jesus is the source of the selfless life. The model of the selfless life is Jesus himself, who in humility took on our form in our flesh. In humility, counted equality with God, not something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He went to the cross for you and for me. If we want to know humility, we have to know Christ. The deeper that we know Christ, the deeper, deeper that we encounter the selflessness of Christ, the more we'll grow in our humility and our care for others. Therefore, the greatest way to prevent a slow fade at the end of the race is to stay close to Christ, to abide 
to remain, to stay connected to him, to pray, to read his word, to spend time in intentional community with other believers, to worship, to share your faith, to serve his body. We reflect those we spend the most time with. And if we spend consistent time, growing time with Christ, we will grow in our humility. So if we avoid our four principles tonight, we can avoid a similar fate to Hezekiah. And it might be easy in some regards <laughs> to point a finger in, at Hezekiah and say, man, that was stupid. But then we look in the mirror and realize, yeah, you've probably made some stupid decisions, and so have I. You know, if my life was printed in a history book for all to read, there would be plenty of that was stupid moments. And some of the chapters would be really funny. <laughs> like the chapter called How Not to Break Up with Your Girlfriend. Yeah, not my brightest moment. Or the chapter called Did You Really Just Say That Out Loud? Some of the chapters would be sobering, like what happens when you make ministry your identity. If we look in the mirror, we look in the history book at our life, man, we're all going to have the that was stupid moment, aren't we? And sorry to break it to you, but as you look ahead to the future, you're going to have more that was stupid moments. But I'm encouraged that God is sovereign over your stupidity. <laughs> And he's sovereign over mine too. That we serve a God who can take our sin, who can take our mistakes, who can take our stupid moments and use them for his glory. Now that's not a license to sin because often stupid decisions are followed by painful consequences. But still at the end of the day, God can take our mess and somehow use it for his glory. Again, it's not a license to be stupid. But when we look in the mirror and realize that we just did something dumb, we've got to respond a little better than Hezekiah did. Not with apathetic indifference, but with humility and with repentance. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Grace upon grace. Let's pray. Father, it can be easy sometimes to look at a text like this, to point a finger at Hezekiah and say, man, I would never do that. But then we look in the mirror at our life and realize we've done that plenty of times. Um, Father, you know that none of us are immune from making a mistake, from making a stupid decision. And when that does happen, may we run to you first. May we ask for forgiveness first. And may you even use our messes for your glory. Remind us that you're a father who always stands with open arms welcoming your children back home, not as a license to keep sinning, but a reminder that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So as we take some time to dialogue about um, our message tonight, our passage tonight in our small groups, may it be a helpful and a productive time. In Jesus' name, amen.